Hello, humans. Happy New Year. I hope you are feeling optimistic and excited about the next year we're all going to share together on this planet. And if not, hey, welcome to How to Human. You're in the right place. Maybe something you hear on this interview will change that. This is a great conversation. This conversation has been through quite a journey. It started with me really loving a column that was coming out on an app called Lucid at the time. Now it's called Imprint. And it was this series called Philosophy and the Meaning of Life. And every Tuesday, John would, I guess John and these illustrators would create these philosophy lessons that were beautifully illustrated and bite-sized and were just really enjoyable. And this came at a time when I was really trying to distance myself from social media, trying to read a lot more. And this was kind of a compromise. And instead of picking up the phone and reading news or social media at the time, I could pick up the phone and read one of these lessons by John Cag. So I asked him to be on the show. I was incredibly excited. I actually found out kind of what a big deal he was in the academic world after he was already booked from another friend, Mary Catherine McDonald, who's like, dude, you booked a rock star. He's like, he's amazing. We love him. And we had a great conversation. We had an amazing interview. The problem was, and this is where the twists and turns really start to come in, something went wrong with my recording. And so John sounded fine, but my track was nearly completely inaudible. You could hear what I was saying, but you really couldn't comfortably listen to what I was saying. So over the past week and a half, we have painstakingly basically reenacted and re-recorded line for line what I said in the conversation. It sounds pretty natural. But it's basically it's basically dubbed over so we could share this conversation so you could enjoy what is being shared in this conversation at some it's somebody who I really cherish and enjoy their work and I wanted to share. Oh, also like 20 trillion gallons of water came down on California this past week and all of our houses, we all got the joy of discovering where the leaks in our roofs are and our yards getting destroyed. And so it's just been it's been a journey to get here. I'm tired as I record this, but I am so excited to get this this episode out in sync, or at least close to in sync, with the release of John's new book, which is called Be Not Afraid of Life. I own a copy. I have started reading it. It's a beautiful companion book for especially hard times or for if you are asking the big questions of what the hell am I doing here and is life worth it? This collection of works by William James that John Cag and an associate have put together is beautiful. To prep for this interview, I read one of his books, Hiking with Nietzsche, and I've started another book of his since this interview called American Philosophers, A Love Story, which I'm enjoying everything I've read from the guy. So this is somebody who, you know, might not be a household name, but I'm excited that, I mean, you might not know him yet, but after this conversation, you will. And I'm excited that I get to introduce you or potentially get to introduce this really sweet and gentle and brilliant mind with all of you. So without further ado, here is my conversation with John Cag that we've called Be Not Afraid of Love, something that he says in the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hey, John, thanks for your time. It's really nice to get to meet you. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, John, I have this funny association with you, which is that you came into my life through an app formerly known as Lucid, and I found your series I think it's called The Philosophy of Life. No, The Meaning of Life. Yeah, Philosophy and the Meaning of Life. Philosophy and the Meaning of Life, yes. And so I found you at this point in my life where I was 
getting off social media, getting off, looking at my phone first thing in the morning. And what I would do is I would hop on what was then called the Lucid app. And I would go and read another chapter that you had written in the philosophy of meaning of life. So I have this association of you and like doing something really positive for myself. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, there are worse things to do with your phone, I think, than going on Lucid. It's, I think it's now called Imprint. They just changed the name. But yeah, there's more. There are many worse things that one could do with their time on their phone. So way worse things. Well, anyway, you're so you're associated with this like. Mo beautiful moment of giving myself a serene, calm, quiet morning. Anyway, so I'm excited to book you. I, we get you on the show, or we get you booked to be on the show, and I casually mention your name to a future guest, a trauma researcher named Mary Catherine McDonald, who's incredible, But and she kind of lets me know, like, oh, John Cag's actually a really big deal. Oh, no, that's you're very kind, and she was very kind. <laughs> And so she shows me like your course on outliers, like your history, all the books that you've written. And it was like this big, expansive experience for me where, you know, I really just enjoyed you as the guy who made this little column that I read in the mornings. But now to discover kind of what an important figure you are in the modern landscape is really cool. And I, I love the idea of outliers. Yeah, I, I've been working. I worked I did their philosophy class, their intro to philosophy class. But then I also did their college writing one and college writing two class. And I really, really was impressed by the quality of online education. I had always been kind of skeptical about online education. And but the the affordability combined with the resources combined with the high quality production lectures was just like pretty cool. I think it can do something very cool in terms of secondary education or higher education. Well, John, I'm a college dropout. I, you know, partially for a lot of reasons. I had a kid at 19. I was not very mentally stable. I was getting clean or still on or getting off of drugs. And so there's this, there's this deep pain in, in my heart related to college, to higher education, to the, the lack thereof that I got and that I've I'm missing a liberal arts classical education and didn't get to read the books that you get to read. And so there's been this, I think, hesitancy or fear around having academics on because you represent something that I don't get to have, or at least not right now in my life. But and yeah, anyway, it's I associate it with like not getting to have this thing that a lot of my friends got to have. And instead, I got this life of responsibility right away. And you know, I, I love my son, I love responsibility, but it took me a while to come around. Anyway, the point is, it took me a while to come around to having academics on and I've just started to have them on and I'm, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, I, I fully, fully understand where you're coming from. And uh, I mean, I can also empathize with coming very close to dropping out of college myself. So, and I'm I, in hindsight, I think that many, I mean, I think many of my friends who did drop out live life. I mean, lived a different sort of life that I actually kind of envy in a certain, certain way. But anyway, that's, I guess, beside the point. All that to say, I'm happy you're here. And I think it's a sign of my healing, maybe, that I'm starting to really warm up to having professors on. So thanks for being here. Cool. Well, I'm happy to chat with you. And I'll probably, I'll, tr I'll try not to be a typical professor. Well, John, here we go. I've started the podcast the same way for many years now. And going to do the same with you, but it might take on a extra funny meaning for you as a philosophy teacher. So John, who are you? I'm going to start with the sort of like very straightforward ones. So I'm a father. 
I'm a teacher, I'm a husband, I'm a depressive, I'm a member of the community. But I think that what you're, what I, what I've come to over the years is that the ways that I used to think about myself in terms of being a scholar or a writer or going through the nine to five and defining myself through my job or defining myself through my relationships, those ways of defining yourself are malleable, effervescent, transient enough that to peg yourself to one way of being for too long is both unhealthy and unrealistic. So in part, the book that I wrote called On Becoming Who You Are, Hiking with Nietzsche on Becoming Who You Are, is about that process of becoming. And who I am these days, after I've gone through cardiac arrest and bypass surgery and two divorces and, you know, two attempted suicides, after through all of that, I have come to believe that the idea of becoming is the satisfying one enough for me. In other words, the process of changing and being alive to the world and changing with the world as you can. I mean, that's who I am, or at least who I try to be, which might seem very esoteric, but it's actually, I think, a way of getting through your days where you don't simply cop out to experience. In other words, you don't you don't just blinder yourself around certain identities that you might have or might want to have and be a little bit more alive to the way that the world around you is moving. So that's what I'm trying to do these days. That's who I'm, who I'm trying to be. So I hope that maybe gives a first kickoff. Oh yeah. I actually read Hiking with Nietzsche to prepare for this interview and I really like your writing style. I like how you teach, but you also overlay your own experience in life to teach that lesson. It's almost like a memoir. I mean, it's like part memoir, part something else. And so I'm really excited for your other books as well. I, ha- I just got my copy of Be Not Afraid of Life. I'm also looking forward to American Philosophy, A Love Story, and Six Souls, Healthy Minds, and whatever else I can find at the bookstore. I'm a fan. So the first like real philosophy question I have for you is, is struggling with life, is finding existing exhausting, as I do, almost a prerequisite for a true deep desire to study these other great minds that have pondered these thoughts, because that's, that's what always happened for me. It's like, I didn't wake up one day and get curious about psychology or philosophy topics. It came from a real pragmatic need that whatever I'm a part of, whatever this human experience is, is hard. It's really hard for me. It seems to be harder for me than maybe most people And that's when I look to others. I mean, this is a really good question. So I think that many academic philosophers think about the discipline of philosophy as a type of game, as a sort of logic puzzle game. And that's not how I ever viewed it. And and thankfully, the professors that I encountered also didn't view it that way. Instead, most of the professors that I gravitated toward in college thought about philosophy as the ancients did, as the ancient Stoics did, as Plato did, as the process of figuring out how to live a meaningful life and how to figure out how to get through the daily shit. Sorry, I don't know. Should I swear on this? Is it okay if I swear on this? Yep. The the daily shit of existence without wanting to, as David Foster Wallace said, put a, put a bullet in your skull. And, and I think that that's a pretty tall order for the love of wisdom. But initially, that's what the love of wisdom was about. It was about 
living a thoughtful life and getting through the difficulties of life in a thoughtful, sensitive fashion that allowed you to flourish or grow as a human being. And for somebody who had struggled for a long time for many different reasons through, as you say, existence, and maybe just, in a, I mean, in a cer- certain first world way or in a white collar way, perhaps, but also deep existential anxiety and depression and issues with family and issues with relationships, I have routinely turned to philosophy to sort of provide some sort of guidance, much as you would think about as a certain type of smart smart self-help or self-help for the smart set. And also, and also I found in philosophy certain companions in misery, as Arthur Schopenhauer would later put it, like I realized that I wasn't the first person to go through some of the difficulties that I was facing. And that, at least in part, is some solace, I think. Well, I love calling philosophy smart person self-help. That's, I'm stealing that one. And yeah, for me as well, as I've, as I've read and, and dove in a little bit into philosophy, it's, it's felt that way. It's felt like I'm not alone in this. You know, there's people that I've met that from the outside staring in, it just seems like they're, and in a way, blessed. Blessed with being okay. Like they go to work, they don't need to love their job, but they're willing to work it. They're willing to go along with life and do the things that you're supposed to do. And it just has always seemed like they're living this ideal life because they don't necessarily suffer or anguish the, the way that I do. And my suffering is actually way better than it was, I think, when I first started the show. You know, I have grown, I have learned, I've gotten better strategies. This the show has helped. Getting connected in community has helped. And that's one of the, the great rewards of this program is to meet other people and to have gotten a chance to gather with other people who, who experience life the way I do, which is, for whatever reason, this deep uncertainty about what to do with the fact that we maybe feel too much or you know, that we're experiencing a lot for us. I mean, what you're describing is certainly the way that I went through the world for a very long time. In fact, still do on occasion today. And I can maybe explain why I don't go through it so much now, nowadays. But um, as I was growing up, that was definitely my mode of existence. And I gravitated, I mean, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says that anxiety is the feeling of freedom, the feeling of possibilities, of absolute or infinite possibilities. And as you say, you don't have any direction to sort of go. Now, I want to just hop on the comment that you made a second ago about those sort of lucky few, or not maybe few, but those lucky individuals who seem to go through their lives without really having to think very hard about things. They just like seem pretty well adjusted and they just crank along in their normal everyday lives. And I mean, I knew a lot of those people growing up in central Pennsylvania. Like I did not grow up in an academic household. And my grandfather was like, worked 70 hours a week at a pharmacy and had absolutely no time for philosophical questions. Like he was like, why, why, why are you becoming a philosopher? Like that is a complete waste of your time. And he held that view. And this is the point I'm getting to. He held that view all the way to the time when he got to be 85 or 86. 
when his health began to deteriorate. And then guess who he started calling on the phone and asking questions, and asking questions? <laughs> me. And I think that in some ways, like the time for reflection can vary among individuals. And sometimes you get to the end of your life and you're like, oh, I start need, I need to start asking those philosophical questions now. So he'd ask like, am I a good person? Have I lived a good life? What's the nature of God? What's the nature of morality and justice? Like, and those are philosophical questions that like have kept me up at night from the time that I was 14. And he just didn't understand why I'd be thinking about them. But I think that in part, the Aristotle says that philosophy, to, that the task of philosophy is to grow up prematurely, which basically means that as a young person, maybe some people don't really see the point of it, but they're the ones that might be able to benefit the most because they can change their life on the base of it. Whereas older people like my grandfather turning 86, he had all of these philosophical questions, but sometimes he didn't like the answers that he was getting at 86. And he was like, oh, sugar, I should have gone back. And, you know, I wish I would have lived a different type of life. So I don't know. I just wanted to, I wanted to contribute that thought. Well, thank you for that. Because, well, one, the Kierkegaard chapter that you mentioned in Lucid, now I think you said it was called Imprint, it was the, f the first time that Kierkegaard actually made sense to me, at least his idea about anxiety. And that anxiety is the sensation of feeling all the possibility at once and that you could like anxiety was almost something to lean into and learn to understand and maybe it was because it was dumbed down enough for me or maybe it was the drawings that went along with it but either way it, it met me where I was and it was the first time I could understand this thinker that has touched many of my friends and so and that is sort of the beauty of, it was A, what brought us together today, but the beauty of, you know, having this morning where I probably didn't feel so hot, which is why I was off social media to begin with, getting to understand this thinker, thanks to you. Right. And that's the, in part, seeing like, oh, that's what's going on with me. Self-identification or that self-reflection, I think is really valuable. It's not just navel gazing. It actually allows you to live your life in a more purposeful way if you know what the hell's going on with you or, or or have some idea or have some language to try to understand what's going on and that's what philosophy has given me repeatedly is some sort of language or framework to understand my own self which can often be opaque you know we are opaque to ourselves and philosophy tries to shed just a teeny bit more light on it I think. okay so here we go as a fellow suicidal person as somebody who has had a lot of suicidal ideation in my life in this existence I've had a, a couple I think only like two what could be considered actual thinking about bringing it into the real world or starting to bring it into the real world but as somebody who has had that thought of why live that's actually a philosophical question that's something that entertained Camus and that's something that the your guy William James talks about and ponders about. And so that's, you know, that's the question I'm going to lay at your feet now is, is why not kill yourself? Why live even though living is so excruciating at times? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's such a big question. <laughs> so uh, you can shut me up at any time here and jump in. But I mean, I've given, I'm attracted to philosophers who have crafted philosophies that have kept them alive. And I think Camus is one of them, for example. 
And Camus says at the beginning of the myth of Sisyphus, he says there is but one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. Whether life is of worth or not is the most important question, and everything else is fairies dancing on the head of a pin. Like everything else is, you know, window dressing. And I, when I read that, I think I was 16, I just went right in. I thought like, this is how I'm feeling. And I want to know if I should or shouldn't kill myself because it's looking pretty bad. Like it's looking like I live in an absurd universe that is completely indifferent to my human purposes, that I'm just a sack of meat and worm food at the end of the day. And why don't I just do it? Or I get so angry and self-loathy that like the idea of jumping off a bridge doesn't particularly upset me. That That's where I was at the time. And this response, which I thought was a good response for a long period of time, was that as human beings, we experience the absurd because it is our condition. Like there's this radical disjunct between an indifferent universe and my, my desires to create purpose and human lasting human meaning. But Camus says that's not a reason to go jump off a bridge. That's a reason to push harder. And that's why the character of Sisyphus is the like classic character where Sisyphus from Greek mythology pushes this boulder up a hill. Just to fall right back down. And Sisyphus goes, and this is supposed to be torture. But at the end of the myth of Sisyphus, Camus says something crazy. He says, he says, we must imagine Sisyphus as happy. And I'm like, what? Like this guy I'm supposed to imagine happy. But I think as I've, as I thought about it as a young man, the only way I could make sense of it is kind of like this is that if you go to the gym or if you run or if you like really think hard about something and you're hitting the wall again and again and again, just the effort of going to the gym, you know, like quote maxing out at the gym with a bunch of weight or the issue of maxing out when you run and try to run long distances, that experience, you're going to fail. You're going to be like Sisyphus, but you can put your back into it in a way that at least at the end of your life, you get to say, I was there. Like I made a stand against the absurdity of the universe. And for a long time, that kept me going. I was like, you know, I'm just going to put my back into this. So that was one way. I don't think that that's the best way, but I'll shut up. I mean, maybe you have thoughts about that and then we can, you can say, Hey, who, who do you, who do you rely upon now? And it's not Camus, but that's where I started at least. The dance between nihilism, existentialism, absurdism, that's like the dance of my life. That's the dance of my mind of going from, oh my God, nothing matters. There's no meaning to, oh my God, there's no meaning, which is more like absurd. It's like, how great, you know, let's get weird to, yeah, well, you know, there might not be any meaning, but we can, we seem to be able to make meaning, like we're meaning making machines, you know, try telling a three-year-old that her stuffed animal isn't meaningful. I mean, it's, it, that's that's the true absurdity is that we happen to be these creatures that make things matter. And, you know, and that struggle, that dance, that those three kind of competing forces playing at work has led to kind of these beautiful experiences. Like, okay, well, maybe I'll try helping friends. Like, let's see what I can make matter to me. Right. And not only that, but I was part of it. I mean, that's the miraculous thing with when there's no pixie dust in the universe or no like, 
you know, great when, when God is dead, for example, everything is permitted. When, when you, when you have those moments of, oh my gosh, I'm doing something meaningful in a world that is not inherently meaningful, you, you feel, I mean, you feel like, wow, this is what being an author of meaning means. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think that it's pretty miraculous or pretty life-giving. More recently, I've turned to a 19th century philosopher after Nietzsche by the name of William James. And I've given his thought or his question, is life worth living? He, he expresses it in an essay in 1896. He asks, is life worth living? And James, he says, maybe it depends on the living, which I, which I always thought was a horrible cop out. But now that I'm older, I think that that is the absolute best answer to the question. And I can explain why, but I mean, why I think it is. But I think that not having a straightforward yes or no answer is the sort of dance that you're describing. So in other words, James was in the 1870s, James was, was precisely dancing through nihilism, meaning making, and then trans, the flirting with the feeling of the sublime or transcendent meaning making, and then back to nihilism, that, that sort of circle that you articulated. And I think that his maybe, it depends on the liver, comes out of that experience. I noticed that you've been really interested in American philosophers. James, I believe, is an American philosopher. And so what have you been finding there? Correct. I mean, he was the founder of American pragmatism at Harvard in the 1890s after C.S. Peirce. And then he also founded empirical psychology in his Principles of Psychology in 1890. So yeah, he was American. So what have you what have you drawn from that? What have you learned studying this American philosophers more deeply, or specifically with your book, American Philosophy, James Thoreau and Emerson? What, what have you found there? James Emerson, Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and and uh, Jane Addams are the principal figures in that book, and. They come out of American transcendentalism. You can think about the individualism of Emerson and self-reliance, trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. Or Thoreau, I went to the woods to live deliberately to make sure that I didn't get to the end of the uh, end of life and discovered that I haven't lived. That type of line, and again, it's the type of philosophy as really intelligent self-help. That type of line percolates and continues through the philosophy of William James, where I sort of have hung out for most of my adult intellectual life. And I think with James, what attracts me to James is that he was what he later would call a sick soul. In the 1870s and 1880s, he struggled with serious depression and considered suicide number a number of times. And his philosophy I think was tailored to individuals like himself to try to figure out how to make meaning when the world doesn't seem to grant the possibility of that. And so the what I find most compelling about James is his insistence that our free will has an effect in the universe, which if you think about when you really fall into deep you feel powerless. You feel like you can't go forward or you have lost control. Either you feel out of control emotionally, like your emotions take control, or you feel like you have no emotions and you can't, you know, effectively act in the world. James experienced himself in that position many times. 
And when he says that life is worth living, or the question is life worth living, he says, maybe it depends on the liver. I think that you should, or I have read that maybe in many different ways. Like one is it's up to you to make life worth living. Like it's always up to you. It's not, nobody else can do it for you. You can't call your mom up and she gives you human meaning. You can't call your God up and have him, her, or they give you their meaning. Like it's up to you. It's it's up to the liver. James is also giving us like latitude in, he's, he's accepting the possibility that for some of us, sometimes life will not be worth living. I'm dealing, not dealing, I'm going through a, the process of watching my mother die currently. She's, she's lost the ability to walk. She's now losing the ability to move her arms and she doesn't have much time left. And I've thought about this maybe in reference to her life, thinking like at a certain point, her life to her is not worth living. And I wish that it would end for her sake. James is open to that possibility. I think those are the first ones is sort of life-giving, affirmative, you can change your life move. The second one is maybe life for some people in certain circumstances is not worth living. It's a kind of realism, maybe a pessimism. The third way of understanding this maybe I think is the most subtle, but also the most miraculous to the way that I think. So I think James is directing us to the maybes of the universe. And you might be like, what the hell is Keg talking about? No, keep and going. What I mean it about the maybes of the universe is that William James thought that the universe was shot through with possibility, like at a metaphysical level, like the universe have chances and chance occurrences. And for persons and individuals like you and me and the people listening, the chances of the universe, the sort of unexpected turns that the universe makes are our chances. And you're, you're still like, what are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. That if you think about the most meaningful moments of your life, they, I would venture to say at the base of them have possibility at the base. What do I mean? My most meaningful sort of moments of life are falling in love, like take falling in love. Yes. Okay. Or, or a first kiss related to that or playing, playing soccer or painting or teaching a class. Okay. These are my like most meaningful moments in each case, they would not be meaningful if the, the, the sort of end state of those moments were determined beforehand. In other words, I would not find a first kiss particularly interesting if I knew exactly how it was going to go beforehand. Like I wouldn't, I play soccer or played soccer because it was this unfolding of possibility. Like what was going to happen? I would have to involve myself and have to adjust to the circumstance. Or when I teach a class, I never lecture because it's too damn boring because I know exactly how it's going to go. Like, I want to feel the possibility. I want to feel the different changes. And I think James is always saying to us, he's saying, is life worth living? Maybe. And he's saying, look out for the maybes in your life. Like, there's always little possibilities. There are always little changes that you can adjust yourself to, which I think for somebody who's up on the bridge considering jumping, 
he's basically saying like, hey, hey, that's a possibility, I grant, okay? But there are also other possibilities. You can come down here and try, like tomorrow there might be a maybe out there that you find meaningful. Maybe, maybe. Like you can always jump. It's always the trapdoor, as Turgenev said. Like you can always leave. But once you leave, there's no more possibilities, okay? Or at least unless you believe that you're going somewhere else, maybe there's possibilities. But I, I, that's not my route. Anyway, long-winded, <laughs> but that's what given me. I take a very similar approach. So I'm in recovery. I get a lot of people who are thinking about relapse and I also am a depressive. So I get people who are thinking about suicide and, you know, I'm always kind of, my first intuition is, okay, well, if you've really thought about it and you want to relapse, you want to go to the bar, well, I'll meet you there. So I'll buy you a drink. And their first, you know, the first thing generally they say is, hey, fuck you. Well, okay. So now we're talking because if that reaction is, hey, fuck you, I'm serious. I'm really going to relapse. I'm really going to jump off the bridge or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, well, where'd that fuck you come from? Because there's still a part of you that fights that. And that's the most beautiful part to me. That's my favorite thing to come out. Because there's one thing to talk to people and to try and give them advice. It's very much from the outside. You are talking to their outsides, hoping that what you're saying is going to make it to the insides. But when you say, okay, like, where are you doing it? What's up? You want me to meet you there? Buy you a drink? When you get that fuck you, that comes from the inside. And when you get that thing coming from the inside, that's the place to start the dialogue. It's like, okay, you've gotten there. You have admitted you don't want to be here anymore. You have admitted that you don't want to be sober anymore. It's gotten hard. But there is still a part of you that fights that. Let's talk about it. And that admission, that admission more often than not, of all the people that I've talked to, you know, a few have ended up not, ended up staying sober or not wanting to be here. And, you know, that's okay. It's not my life. It's their life. I really don't take ownership over that. But but to view that admission, that reality, that that's where they feel as the starting point rather than as the ending point, that's where it gets interesting. Right. And I mean, that's the, the response of just being curious, getting curious, as you say about the situation rather than passing judgment on it or for foreclosing the possibility that this is real for another human being, which I think is what the yes does. If, if I say, is life worth living? And I say, yeah, are you, you're crazy if you don't think life is worth living. Like that's one of the more alienating ways to approach somebody who is kind of convinced that life is not worth living. If you just come up and say, yeah, I mean, obviously you're missing out on something. Like the depressive already feels like he, he or she or they are missing out on something. <laughs> like you don't, you want to say maybe, or you want to say like, let's get curious. So I think that, that, and that's what William James allows us to do. I think. I can't wait to read your new book that covers more on William James, which is called Be Not Afraid of Life. But okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here and take a little bit of a left turn. And if you don't want to answer it, we can just edit this out. But why do you keep getting married? John, what, what about the institution of marriage is so important to you? And I hope that's not crossing a line. Oh, man. Yeah. So I, I, I've been divorced twice and I'm married again in short order. Hmm. How personal do I want to get? This is a very good question. Let me go this direction first. So I am a monogamous beast. So I'm a serial monogamist. And... I'll be very frank with you that it's it's a function of growing up in a very conservative central Pennsylvania household that 
when you get close to someone, you are supposed to settle down and make a life. And that seems very traditional and boring, but that's just who I am. So one of my very recent partners, when we split up, said to me, oh, we can just live a polyamorous life. And I was like, you don't know, you have no idea who I am. Like, I'm just, I'm just not that way. And it seems old fashioned and sort of backward, but that's, it, it's the idea of dating or the idea of, and then you might say like, what's the, what's the problem with being single? The idea of dating at least and dating many different people is not one that I'm particularly interested in primarily because I trust I like, I think relationships are built on extreme intimacy and trust. And I can't necessarily think about doing that with multiple people over and over again. It kind of hurts my soul to think about that. You can ask follow-ups though. I mean, it's an interesting question and lots of people have asked me and I usually skirt the topic. You're getting a, you're getting an opening. So go ahead ask ask me some follow-ups. <laughs> well, if you were here in person, I'd crack you wide open. It's kind of my superpower. Yeah, go ahead. So this opens up a, you know, an area of myself that I don't talk about too much on the show. We never talk politics. We we rarely even get into like political theory. But we'll, I'll talk psychologically. Psychologically, I have a conservative mind. I feel like I have a very progressive heart, but deep down, I want things to move slowly. Like I'm I'm up for new ideas. I want everyone to live as good as we can possibly make it. I want there to be improvements in the quality of life for everybody. But my, you know, I'm always that guy who's like, but who's going to keep the water going? Who's going to keep the basics running? And actually, yeah, I don't know where it came from. I grew up in a really progressive, really liberal, lefty, feminist household. And maybe it was because of that growing up with a single mom that there's just this, there's an attraction to like traditional kind of family values or like to the point to where, I mean, seriously, to the point to where I started, you know, listening to and finding great interest in this very conservative or a traditional Presbyterian pastor, I'm blanking on his name, you know, talking about waiting until marriage and building a covenant and these things, which is hilarious because my life has played out completely different. I've actually, you know, if anything, like hoard myself out in, in my younger years. And so, but it's interesting that there's some kind of... Yeah some kind of safety there. There's something that is interesting yeah. to me about that. I, let me let me say, let me jump in here real quick. Cause I'll, I'll say it. Cause you're being so Frank you have the power to crack me open here. So, I mean, so I've been married three times and this is how many sexual partners I've had. Wow. And so I, and if, if you're, if your listeners are just listening, I like the number three is the same. So, and people are like, wow, that's really backward. But I just, that's just the way that I'm wired and, and I don't expect to change, but I will say, I will say this. So I was brought up with a fairly, fairly strong single mother. She was a high school English teacher. We didn't have a lot of cash and, but she really taught us to respect women and women's bodies and, and to, you know, just to, yeah, to be fairly progress, even though we lived in a conservative town, the degree of respect and what a woman could do was sort of instilled into me at a fairly early age. And I entered philosophy and lo and behold, like my first two wives were philosophers. 
And they were both, we tried to embody like very extremely progressive ideals about freedom and lack of boundaries. And, and, and you know what it made me feel deeply insecure and, and over the last four years, since I've been with Kathleen, I've found that returning to certain types of boundaries around relationships for me creates a sense of stability and trust that I had lacked in earlier relationships, which is to say, I guess that sometimes the philosophical ideals that we hold for ourselves and then try to try to translate into relationships are oftentimes not in tune with the reality or the actions of those relationships. And recently I found it much, much easier, much more satisfying to allow myself to have a more traditional relationship than I had before. I'm actually really glad that you brought this up. Thank you for being vulnerable because I relate to a lot of what you're saying in the sense that, you know, it's very fun to try and be who you want to be on paper, who you want to be in your mind. But to actually meet yourself where you are, to meet your body is part of the process, for me at least, of of self-discovery is to figure out what what do you want and then to test it out. Like, do do you actually want that? And uh, part of that means paying attention to the actual sensations of the body, like paying attention to what's actually happening while it's happening. One of the things that I noticed while listening to you is how interesting it is that there's these, there's this intentionality in your life that just blows me away that I feel so attracted to with how you've chosen to live that doesn't match my behavior at all. So this whole thing, these things coming up for me is really interesting that there's this admiration, there's this draw towards something that doesn't match the way that I've lived so far. And I really see it as an opportunity to try and discover what what is singing to me. Obviously, I can't become a virgin again, or I can't change the, the life that I've had, and I don't think I would want to. But I am enjoying the, the call to what's here for me. I, I know that we might be well off topic here, but this is one of the first times that I've gotten a chance to like really think of think about this with somebody on a, on a podcast. I, the, you, you say that, and you said that you sort of hoard yourself out as a young man and were not very careful with love and sex on the flip side, coming from somebody who was overly careful about love and sex. I think that you can err on that side as well. Because if you think that sex and marriage go like this, like peas and carrots, ne- and never the twain shall they not meet, once you have sex, then you're going to get married, <laughs> okay? And that's a real hard one to swallow, okay? And one and one that I definitely went through, right? And thankfully, at the age of 40, I began to separate those things off. But it wasn't until that time. And it probably led me to get married when I shouldn't have. Not that I regret having my daughter, but I perhaps should have thought twice about who I was getting married to. Well, you know, I want to go through a bunch of topics, but I'm actually really loving this one. So my question, I guess, next is, as you think, like you're you're a philosopher, you're a thinker, you're an academic, as you try to think and order your life into specifically who you are as a partner, who John is as a husband, how do you approach that? How do you actually go about thinking about what kind of husband do I want to be? I guess, what is your love ideal? What is your highest expression of love as a husband to you? 
you get down with your client or get down with your speakers like this all the time. So, okay, here we go. So I think that, so I, at the age of 41, after my second wife left, I went through a very hard time or at the age of 40, I'm sorry. I went through a very hard time and I contracted sepsis because I cut my hand and then went and gardened intentionally and let it get infected. And then I, after I got that sepsis cleared up, then I proceeded to have a cardiac arrest after running six miles. And they had to shock me back to life on the gym floor of my university. And then I had bypass surgery and they had to ablate a large chunk of my heart, which means like laser it. At that point I was with Kathleen and we were dating and she, for the first time in my freaking life, I was completely unable to perform the most basic things that, you know, I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't able to really move. I was bedridden at Tufts Medical Center for 19 days and she just stuck with me. And, and for the first time I realized like, I don't have to be a certain way for, to, in order to be loved, which is the very first time I experienced that in life. I mean, I had my, my mom did the best she could, but love was always conditional. I was going to write a book called Love's Conditions, but I'm going to delay that. But it was always conditional. I had to be a certain way or do a certain thing in order to get affection and to be loved. Deeply transactional. And getting sick, I mean really sick, led me to understand that that is not what love is. And love is not transactional. It's not like Thomas Merton says, it's not this, you know, it's not, it's not a bargain. It's not a deal. Like it's not an issue about trading up when things go hard. Like it's just to love the other person through the shit of life where, where the other person is completely beside themselves, literally. And she did that for me. And, and we got, I immediately after that, I proposed to her basically. And I said, like, I'd never experienced that. I want to, I want to try to give that or not give that to you, but to, to be that way with you. And so the way that I want to show up as a husband is to obviously maintain your self-respect and don't be a doormat and to be honest with the other person, but also to love the other person without thinking that they have to do something for you in order for that transaction to occur. Merton also says, he says, the secret to, of loving is only to love more, is only to love the beloved. It's, there's no like point to it. So I think that that's what I would like to do as a husband. I guess parenting is a similar type of thing. You don't expect your children, and you probably, I mean, you know this, like your children aren't going to reciprocate you changing their diapers. You just do it. And there's no sense, or there shouldn't, I don't think, be a sense that your kids owe you things at the end of the day. So I don't know if that, if that begins to answer it or answer my answer your question. It does actually, which brings me into my next question, which is as somebody who's gotten a chance to pour over all these great thinkers and really digest them and get to make it you know, literally work with them and understand them. How have you synthesized that into your own personal philosophy? And I'll actually, I'll get a little bit more specific, which is, 
you know, I think for many of us who are really, you know, thinking deep and trying to live intentionally, one of the things that we're trying to avoid the most is getting to the end of this temporary experience and to go, wow, I blew it. I, I, I did not make the most of this time. And so in your own personal life, how do you, how do you order yourself? How do you live in a way to try and not get to the end of this temporary existence with some sense of regret or some sense of that you could have done something differently? Because this thing is temporary and we will die in a hundred years from now, our great grandchildren, if we have any, people probably, you know, even if we don't, people probably will not remember our names. And so what can we do here? Or at least how do you order your life in terms of what you can do here to try and get to the end of the road and to feel like, okay, what I did mattered. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think the most, the scariest part of death isn't the dying part. It's the regretting that you hadn't lived a certain way part. And I, when I came back after cardiac arrest, I definitely got that wake up call. And I, I think I followed William James on this. He says, when you experience the maybes of life, you also get a feeling of zest. The zest is this sort of like tingle that you get that just feels like you are wholly present. Or, I mean, it can also be the feeling of sort of losing yourself in a moment. Those are the types of moments that I go after, Not maybe not on an hourly basis, but definitely on a daily basis. So for example, as we're talking, I'm not, I'm trying, I'm trying not to look down on myself. In other words, like get be, I'm trying to be present with you. And so too, when I teach my classes, so too, when I parent my kids, like I don't try, I try not to think about what's coming next. And I try not to think about what has just happened. I just try to be present. And I think that that experience of being present is also the experience of giving of yourself to some other either person or experience that I think is one of the things that we find meaningful as human beings. So I ask my students, sometimes I say like, where do you find yourself? And then I quickly switch and I say, where do you lose yourself? And they're the self same experiences. And it's not just semantics. It's not just like wordplay. I think when human beings, I think when we folks in the modern age go about our nine to five daily grinds, a lot of times we are not present in our nine to five daily grinds. Like we're just, our minds are elsewhere while our bodies are somewhere else. And I find that to be a really both disconcerting and unmeaningful situation to be in. So I try, I guess I try to be present. Like I'm not, I'm not particularly great at it. I'm not the Buddha, but like I, you know, I try to be present, I think. I also think that I've allowed myself these days to be honest with myself about what I want and what I need. And a lot of those wants and needs might not sound good on paper, but I want them anyway. You open the door. All right. What do you want, John? (laughs) I want a a lake house. (laughs) It's not something that a philosopher is supposed to want. I want to go skiing. I want to have sex. Like I want to eat chocolate scones and I want to watch bad TV with my kids sometimes. And I want to, I don't want, sometimes I don't want to write. And sometimes I want to cut wood and like my wood piles right out there. But, uh, and yeah, sometimes I don't want to get up and I don't get up. 
So anyway, it's all the stuff that puritanical New Englanders tell tell you that you shouldn't want. And that that New Englandness sort of like percolated down into Pennsylvania Dutch Protestantism in Pennsylvania. We really have such an interesting relationship to our wants. Well, I'll just speak for myself. I'll meet you there with, you know, sometimes the things that we want, we're not actually quite willing to admit that we want, or there's some kind of funny hang up, like maybe you're spiritual and, but you really want a sports car. That was a a funny bit of drama that happened in the Bay Area Buddhist community here is one of the teachers got a nice fancy sports car and it kind of caused some drama. But I actually got to partake in an exercise recently where people are literally in a semicircle around you yelling, what do you want? What do you want? And the idea is that you're just responding. You're just going with your intuition. It's trying to get you past that kind of thinking mind, that thing that's going, no, 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 you can't want that. It's not okay to want that. And really interesting things come up in that exercise. Like you, you meet people that didn't necessarily want kids before, and then they're doing this exercise and they're in their career first and they're executives. And that's really the most important thing to them. And then during this exercise, they're blurting out, I want kids. I want to be a mom. And you're just all kind of like, whoa, where would that come from? And there's a beauty there for all of us, I think, to learn something from, which is not to necessarily just give in to all our desires and our wants and needs, but to really try and get in tune with it and to at least it let it let it have a voice in the room. Yeah. I, I love swimming. I mean, like I think about Camus and there's this, this, and the stranger and this very famous book about this very weird and amoral man named Marceau who ends up killing and the main plot line is that he ends up killing a man and then dying, you know, being prosecuted and, or rather being condemned for it and dying. Sorry if I gave that away to your listeners. But the though doesn't want what everybody else wants. Okay, he wants very simple things. Like he likes the feeling of his hands running through his lover's hair. And he likes the feeling of swimming in the ocean. That's it. And Thor- and Marceau says it. He says it out loud. He says, this is what I want. And we look at him and we judge him. We're like, why don't you have more complex wants and needs? But at least he's honest about what he wants and what he needs and what he, where he can tap meaning. I mean, many of us don't, are not honest about what we want. We're worried that we'd be judged or we're worried that our lovers would think poorly of us if we actually said what we want. So, I mean, yeah, I'm with you on what do you want? And then just blurting stuff out. I like that exercise. Maybe I'll do it with students. It's a good one, but you really got to yell. And we have actually three people yelling at us, so there's no space. You're not actually responding to an individual person, but you're really just from from something other than your mind responding. <laughs> it's really cool. But you know, on that note, John, what do you want to do before you die? What are the things really calling to you to get done while you have this chance here? I mean, trying to. I'm so my my kids. Most parents are going to say, I want my kids to grow up and be happy and well-functioning. But I think it's a little different. Maybe it's a, it, it, that is what I want, but the, the, the desire is a little more complex than that. So I'll give you the backstory. I mean, I'm my, my partner, my wife, Kathleen, has a biological child, Henry. And then I have a biological child, Becca. And we're trying to raise them in a single, you know, in a single house, right? And we're trying to co-parent with other with other people not living with us. And my, growing up in a single family 
where my my alcoholic father just kind of took off. I was never confident that this situation would work out well. In other words, like, and my one of my greatest desires in life is to see that this can work, that I can love Henry as I would a biological child, that Ian can love Becca as a biological child, as that we can somehow give them a sense of, you know, consistency and love and support, even if it doesn't go, even if they end up being as messed up as I was as a teenager, I just want to be able to say that we tried and were as mindful about it as we could be. So I think that's one thing. I mean, another thing is I'd like to change the way that education works. I mean, that seems like a big ask, but I mean, that's what I'm trying to do with, that's why I involve myself in Outlier so much. That's why I write for a general public instead of just for other academic scholars. I think, I think higher education is pretty fucked up and I think that it needs fixed. And I think that especially people in the liberal arts, so philosophy, classics, English, creative writing, they need to really make the case our society depends on liberal thinking or not liberal thinking in terms of Democrat thinking. I mean, the liberal arts. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And so I want to push as hard as I can in that direction. And then besides that, I want to have as much meaningful interactions with Kathleen and my friends and make more friends. I'm not particularly good at it, but I'd like to make a bunch more friends, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's I, that's, that's what I want. It's beautiful. So what is your hope for your children? I mean, I'd love especially that you're taking on the task of raising this young man who isn't yours. Oh, he's he's mine. Don't worry. He's totally mine. <laughs> Fair enough. I love that response even more. You know, I I'm also somebody who grew up without a father, and so I ended up with all these incredibly strange ideas of what it meant to be a man and you know, I I guess I picked a lot from pop culture, and so I, I really thought being being tough and being unfuckwithable and, you know, that no one would mess with me was actually going to be a much more important than it ended up being. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I, you know, I, like, invested time, and I, like, picked my friends based off of, you know, who was going to help me if shit went down. And anyway, what is, as a father, as somebody who's rearing children or helping guide children into becoming adults— how do you, what do you want for them knowing that they are their own complete unique individuals on their own journeys and what matters to them might not necessarily matter to you but that you are a guide of some sorts yeah i want them not to be afraid of love i think that's the main like i don't want them to be afraid of yeah that sounds very like cheesy but what i mean by that is this is that my father when i was 11 told me that i was unwanted i mean he told me straight out like your mistake i wish you hadn't been born you fucked up my relationship with your mother like we don't like we just I just never wanted you and I never want my kids to feel that way and I never want them to feel like that love is scary that you're going to get hurt and that's going to be irredeemable if you like yeah love hurts sometimes like being left is rough okay but it shouldn't deter you from putting yourself out again right or to extending yourself again in loving relationships so if I can give them some sort of basis in that regard, I'd be happy. I mean, I'm not sure if this is a selfish thought, but I remember watching my father die when I was 27, 28. And he had esophageal cancer from drinking his face off and for, for all his life. And I just remember having this really ambivalent feeling about him. In other words, this feeling of like, 
this man, I wish he had been in my life, but he wasn't in my life and resenting him and feeling anger. And I don't want my kids to feel that way. And I'm not sure if that's selfish. In other words, I want I like, is that a selfish impulse for me? But I don't think so. Because I think that that is a reflection of a lifetime of care. So in other words, we only see the kids a portion of our lives because they live with their others, their other parents. But when they're here, I want to be there. And I want to say like, hey, I'm here. I love you. I want to try to, I want to, I want to try to, I guess I just want to try to say that to them. And I know I didn't answer your question well. I, I diverged quickly. Do you want to, you want to refocus me? Well, no, not exactly. Because I, I share a lot of those same thoughts. My father and I really didn't start to try to connect until he was already dying of bone cancer, which was like a certain death. You know, it was multiple myeloma. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. He was dying. And, and we tried. You know, we really tried to meet each other and to speak to each other and to connect on a way that we had never been able to connect before. And then, of course, when he died, there was a trauma around it. But the real trauma was the shutting of the door, the fact that this, oh my God, never going to have that hallmark moment. We're never going to get that opportunity to make what had happened okay, or at least make what had happened part of a happy story. It became official. It became official that I'm on my own and my journey of healing this father wound is mine to heal now alone. And no, I, I don't think it's selfish at all what you said. My son's 13. He is. He has his own hero's journey in terms of the world that he's inhabiting and this time period with its own unique challenges. My deep desire is that I am known to him, that he is aware of me and my challenges in my life and what I'm going to. And I want my house to be a complete safe place for him to rest but not just for the sake of resting so he can go out into the arena of life and participate and get knocked around and get wounded and then come home and have a place to safely get back to his feet and get out there again. And so I make sure that my world is known to him when I'm not feeling well. I tell him, hey, I'm, I'm feeling melancholy right now. I actually don't feel like doing what I'm about to do, but look here, I'm, I'm going to do it. And or. I'm actually going to take the rest of the afternoon off if that's what, you know, if that's what's needed that day. And so he is aware of the specifics of my life, the details of my life and the various ways that I have met life and my own life challenges head on. And I've actually, you know, I've asked the question multiple times, like, should I have more kids? Should I pass on my genes knowing that they might pass on depression or they might pass on, you know, the way that I have experienced the world at least by default and but that's not a question for Jax because he exists and he's here and so now it's like okay you're here you might get some of my stuff but at least you will know how I came to meet life and one of the most painful experiences of my life is when my father died taking all my recording equipment flying up to Canada and Seattle and Victoria and all these various places to interview his friends and his family and his wife to try and know this man who is a mystery, that is not going to be the case with my son. I will be known to him. How I think and approach life will be known. Hmm. I think that's a very admirable desire. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think a little bit about my mother who's really ailing. And she said, I saw her yesterday down in Pennsylvania. And she, she goes, I just want to know that I've 
done like that I've done all right by you and that I've done all right by the people that I've interacted with. And at the end of life, I think when you're suffering, maybe at the end of life, I think it's hard to look back and remember that you've done all right. It's some sort of cognitive block that if you have a traumatic, traumatic experience, it's difficult to look over that traumatic experience to realize what you've done that is possibly quite good that has gotten you into that traumatic experience. But it's something to think about. And I know that my, it's on my mother's mind and it, I'm sure it'll be on my mind when I go. Hmm. Well, John, you've been incredibly generous with your time. So I'm just going to jump to here. This is where I like to generally end and I put a little twist on it. But John, if I was to hand you the phone or if I was to step away from the computer right now and taking my seat would be you from 20 years from now. What do you suspect that version of you from 20 years into the future would want to say to you about who you should be, how you should act, what you can do now to really get there in a way that satisfies this person? I think my 20-year-old, my 20-year-old, 20 years from now, looking back, somebody saying to me, me saying to me, I think they'd say, please try to go easy on yourself and others, mostly on yourself. Like you're not, this is not a sprint. Like this is a, this is a marathon and you're going to want to be there. You're going to, you're going to want to get to where I am now. And for you to do that, you need to slow the fuck down and you need to, be much more kind to yourself and realize that like, you don't have to, you don't have to kill you. You don't have to kill yourself to be a success. Like, like just, just being and being awake to the world is sometimes enough. You don't have to kill yourself and also to probably avoid. And I do try to, but try even harder to avoid placing those pressures on your kids, on your loved ones, on the people around you and just enjoy the fact that they're alive, happy, delightful little people or happy, delightful, a happy, delightful wife or a friend or friends that you have or that you make. And I mean, my 20 year old self probably would say something like, be not afraid of love. Like, you know, William James says, be not afraid of life. I think it's more specific, like be not afraid of intimacy and openness and extending yourself and just re and also to remember how scared I was when I was on that floor after they shocked me back to life when I thought I really was not not sure if I was going to continue the one of the thoughts that I think my 20 year old my 60 year old self would say to my 40 year old self is something like try to remember or hold on to that feeling because it, it gives some sort of impetus to live more fully. So that's what I think he, he would say. What a beautiful message, John. Thank you. Thanks for your work, which I think originally brought us together because I had such a good time enjoying it. And I cannot wait to dive deeper into some of the other work that you've done, other books that I haven't gotten a chance to read yet. And just, gosh, I'm just feeling a moment of gratitude for you coming onto this program and sharing some of your thoughts with me. It's very cool. Oh, well, thank you. This has, been a, this has been an absolute delight. I think it's one of my favorite podcasts I've ever been on. 
And on that note, John, I know you're not huge into social media. So where's a good place for people to stay in touch with you and stay up to date on your latest works and what you're up to, what you're thinking? Where's the best place to stay in touch? Well, the there's a book coming out called Be Not Afraid of Life from Princeton. In it's called Be Not Afraid of Life in the word in the words of William James. That'll come out in January. And then I wrote a book on Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, which will come out in June called Henry at Work which I was happy that Bill McKibben said something nice about. So ho- hopefully that'll come out in June. And I don't have any real media presence, but they can always look up my email at john underscore keg at uml.edu and send me a personal email. I would love to hear from them. Thank you, John. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. Really grateful that you made it to this far. That must mean that we're doing something right. If you'd like to help us and help us continue to do this show, you can become a patron, which is just somebody who helps support us financially. And also, you get to join our really cool community. We do events most Monday nights. Sometimes we just hang out. Sometimes we do some working hours together, which we call study hall. And other times we are engaged in a book club. And either way, whatever we're doing that Monday, we'd love to have you. It's a very cool group of humans. You can join that group by going to patreon.com slash howtohuman. And whatever feels right to you, you could contribute that a month, five bucks, 10 bucks. There are some very generous people that contribute more, whatever you can. Either way, I hope to earn your support. You can also follow us on Instagram at hellohumans.co and check out our website, www.hellohumans.co. This podcast, the How to Human podcast, is produced at Square One Studio. And if you would like to have any media, audiobook, or video produced, I highly recommend you check us out at square1.studio. It's a website. Trust me. Thanks and have a great day.